Well, good morning. So, I don't know if you realize this. Some of you may. That uh, song that we sang, All Creatures of Our God and King, was written almost 900 years ago. And yet it still continues to encourage and edify the saints. As I think about two of the passages that have already been referred to this morning. Um, in terms of the psalms, the hymns, and the spiritual songs sung with thankfulness to our Lord. And then... As Hebrews 12 begins, this great cloud of witnesses, and you think about the number of the saints who have stood before and sung those words, and many of them are now glorifying our Lord in heaven. Well, you can go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Haggai as we continue our summer excursion, if you will, into this Old Testament prophet's book. We began our study last week as this brief interlude in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. You know, one of the most difficult practices for just humans in general is introspection. The ability to evaluate or self-evaluate yourself. Many years ago, an advice columnist named Ruth Crawley, who went by the pen name Ann Landers, wrote, Know yourself. Don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. And that's good advice. But the reality is that it is incredibly difficult to evaluate ourselves, isn't it? You see, unlike those around us, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We assume the best of ourselves and our motives. And when there's a problem, we assume the problem is with others, not ourselves. It's their personality that is abnorrent and abnormal. It's not mine. It's not the way I see things or approach things, it's them. Studies show that despite the exhortation to know yourself or evaluate yourself, that people hold self-perceptions that wander a good deal away from the reality of who they are. In fact, it doesn't even take a study for us to recognize that, does it? We, we know that. We know that to be true. We've all struggled that, with that ourselves. Whether it be competence, intelligence, or behavior, our natural inclination is to give ourselves very high scores. We highlight the good while quickly overlooking the bad. Scripture, however, calls upon believers to continually evaluate their life. We are to continually be scrutinizing it and holding it up against the light of Scripture. To bring our lives into conformity with the character and the calling of God, something we would call holiness and sanctification. Recognizing, though, our self-deception, God has given us the Holy Spirit, who also works within us to convict and to instruct and to guide us into truth. But with this, we have the responsibility to work in concert with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, so that we do not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Well, this morning we're going to observe the example of post-exilic Israel who has descended into self-delusion, having seared their consciences over a period of a decade and a half, a little more than that. They are unable to see the extent of their sin and need for repentance and obedience. As we consider their example and the example that's presented by God to us through Haggai the prophet and the command that's given to them and repeat it to them to consider your ways, we want to ask how we can develop a better habit of considering our ways, how we can avoid descending into the same self-deception and disobedience, and how to get out of it when we do fail. So if you haven't already turned there, turn with me to the book of Haggai, 
chapter 1, and we're going to pick back up where we left off last week in verse 5. We read there, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Pray with me as we begin our study this morning. Father, as we open up your word this morning, we do want to learn how to better consider our ways. Not in light of other persons, not in light of what culture says we should consider, but in light of Scripture itself. Help us to learn from this, to be motivated by this text, to consider our ways, comparing them to your glory and your goodness as you have revealed it to us in your holy word. Help us to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. Help us to rightly perceive, to understand. May your spirit do its work in guiding and instructing and training each of us. In your name, amen. Well, just as a recap, last week as we began our study through the book of Haggai, we began with an overview of the historical context and setting before turning our attention to the plight of post-exilic Israel. You may remember that a small portion now of the southern kingdom of Israel, who had been exiled into Babylon a little over 70 years earlier, had now returned to the land. They had returned about 17 to 18 years before the writing of Haggai. They came with a mission from God, with a decree from the king of Persia named Cyrus, and from the prophets themselves, going all the way back to Isaiah, to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem that had been destroyed and laid waste by the Babylonians. However, 17 to 18 years ago, after arriving, after gathering supplies for rebuilding the temple, after laying the foundation and celebrating together, their enemies came and disturbed them and frightened them from building. And so, for 16 to 17 years, no further work has been done on the temple. The people, because of their fear, moved into a state of presuming upon God, assuming that now is not the time to rebuild the temple. As we looked at last week, they arrogantly misplaced their priorities, focusing on building and paneling of their own homes, making themselves more comfortable, while God's temple, His dwelling place, the place of worship, remained desolate. And it's at the height of this presumption, this arrogance and misplaced priorities that Haggai is commissioned by God to rebuke the people and call them to repentance and to obedience. This morning we pick back up this message of Haggai, the prophet to the leaders and people of post-exilic Israel, and we find ourselves here in verse 5 of Haggai 1. 
And we see that verse 5 opens with this reiteration that the message being delivered is, in fact, from the Lord. This is not Haggai's opinion. It's not his postulations. It's not based on any popularity poll. This is the word of God. And what is it that God wants to say to his people? whom he loved, whom he delivered, whom he brought back to Israel after 70 years in captivity to Babylon. This same people who have now, like the people of the Exodus, ignored him for the past 16 to 17 years and have neglected his house. He says, consider your ways. Take stock of your actions and how you are living. Now, this isn't busy work. He's not just assigning them some extra homework to do. No, God is calling on them to take inventory in order to reawaken their consciences. Consciences that they had worked hard to ignore and to cauterize, to awaken them to God's efforts to get their attention and direct them back to Him, to proper worship of Him, to obedience of Him, that they might, again, fulfill their purpose of glorifying God and being a light to the nations. And to help them in this process of awakening them to their spiritual condition, Haggai's message included a summary list of the diminishing return their disobedience had brought upon their physical condition. It was as if the harder they work, the less they have. They were experiencing an increasingly poor return for the effort put forth to acquire both necessities and even niceties of life. In short, their physical condition had become a reflection of their spiritual condition. They were suffering spiritually. They were languishing spiritually as they had allowed their fear to, as we looked at last week, petrify them. And then in that petrification from fear, they had allowed it to degrade into presuming upon God, to questioning God's goodness. And because of that, their spiritual, spiritually they were in a drought. And so God causes the land itself to reflect their spiritual condition. There was indeed a drought in the land, both a drought for water affecting all the produce of the land and a drought or a famine for the word of the Lord. They were suffering spiritually, and as a result, they are suffering physically. In verse 1, we saw that the Lord brought this message to Haggai, and it was very specific. It was on the first day of the sixth month. Now, the sixth month is a reference to the Jewish calendar, not our Gregorian calendar. So this is not June. This is August. It's not the beginning of August. It's the end of August. It's August 29th would be the first day of the sixth month. So it's the end of summer. It's nearing the fall. And this would have fallen right at the start of the fall harvest of millet, grapes, figs, pomegranates, and olives. That is, if there was any to gather. It would have been on the heels of the grain harvesting that would have concluded towards the end of May the paucity or lack of that harvest would have still been fresh. They would have still been stinging from how little they had brought in, from how much work they had poured out. In fact, while Haggai was speaking, perhaps he was pointing to the empty storehouses, the barns, the empty fields, the empty vines, the empty trees, as evidence of their desperate condition. In other words, it's right in front of your eyes. Look. They do not have enough food. They are limited in their drink. Their clothing is thin and insufficient. They've had to hire themselves out as laborers. And even then, as they hire themselves out, the money disappears as quickly as they gather it. The reference to a purse with holes is likely a metaphor for how quickly the wages are used up. It's as if they weren't even there to begin with. 
And to top it all off, notice what it says. You eat and there is not enough to be full. You drink and there is not enough to even become drunk. Why? What are they trying to do? They're trying to drown out their misery. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who noted that the misery of this age can be seen in its desire for artificial stimulants. They were, in fact, miserable. And so they're trying to drown it out, to forget it. And yet God won't even allow them to do that. As Alden notes, all these figures speak of the hardship that befalls people who have not included the Lord in their plans and who are preoccupied with their own interests. And that fits these people perfectly, as we've seen. As we ended last week in verse 4, they're dwelling in their paneled houses, focused on their own luxury and comfort. As you look down in verse 9, they look for much. They're expecting much. They expect a blessing. Well, Haggai concludes this list in verse 7 with the repeated admonition from God to consider your ways. He's calling on them to recognize and take stock of their spiritual condition, to recognize the futility of living this way. In other words, there is a better way. Stop walking in disobedience to God. Calvin notes that it is commonly said that the experience, or it is experience that is the teacher of fools. And the prophet has this in view in these words, apply your heart to your ways. That is, if the authority of God or regard for him is of no importance to you, at least consider how God is dealing with you. Consider your experience. The reality is that there are times where we do not recognize our sin and it takes severe reproof by God to get our attention. This doesn't mean that every hardship, every difficulty, every sickness is a sign of presumptuous rebelling or disobedience to God. No, we live in a sin-cursed world. We will die because of sinful flesh. It's appointed unto man once to die. There's no escaping that. And so those things will still come. And yet, there is within all of this extra hardship and difficulties. We read this morning from Hebrews that comes when we hold on to this sin, when we presume upon God, as David said at the end of Psalm 19, keep me back from presumptuous sins. That is, I sin and I defy God because I'm comfortable in my sin. And so when hardship and reproof seems to come, it's good to not quickly brush it aside, but to stop and take time to evaluate your ways, to pray to the Lord and ask Him to reveal any area of your life where you are, in fact, walking in disobedience. But again, while trials are not themselves an indication of presumptuous sin, as we read this morning, God does continually bring trials into our life in order to reveal weakness and sin and as opportunities for furthering of our obedience. But that is that, as we write in Hebrews 12, is to be distinguished from presumptuous rebellion and the discipline that befalls that. Rather, there is another set of difficulties like we see in James talking about that help us to grow and to mature in the faith. All of these, though, have at their heart the rooting out of sin and making us more like Christ, more like God, to grow in holiness and sanctification. But remember our context. As we look at the severity of the discipline and the punishment here, this is not for those who have no awareness of their sin. These Israelites are in active disobedience. They've allowed their fear to control them, and they're ignoring God's explicit, clear instruction to them. As a result of how hard their hearts have become, how far they have gone in numbing themselves, 
against the Word of God and the instruction of God, it takes this harsh language and harsh dealing with them to get their attention. These years of drought, the limited resources and suffering in order to bring them to the point of repentance. And so having called for Israel to take stock of their lives as a final crescendo to this section, this first message, Haggai issues a command from God that demands obedience while highlighting just how deep their disobedience has gone. It's in verse 8. On the surface, verse 8 is a call to obedience and restarting the work of rebuilding the temple. We read, go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Second half of that verse identifies the whole problem. God is not pleased with them. He is not pleased with their work, and he is not being glorified by them. So how is this going to be remedied? By going up to the mountains, getting wood, and rebuilding the temple. And you're right, it does talk about rebuilding the temple and obedience, but there's much, much more here. The writer of Hebrews expresses it so well when he says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And really this passage, perhaps as much as any other, lays this out clearly for us. See, God reveals through Haggai the manner in which the people have abused God's grace, misappropriated that which was intended for his glory, how they have taken what belonged to God and used it for themselves, in short, how they are stealing from God. Well, how does God do this? Well, it's with the first half of the verse. Go up to the mountains and bring wood. You may be a bit skeptical right now. I'm wondering if I'm going to try and develop some elaborate spiritualization of the term wood or going up onto a mountaintop. But no, not at all. The literal grammatical historical meaning here is much more precise, poignant than any allegorical interpretation I could bring to the text. And let me show you what I mean. Why do they need wood? Well, obviously, they need materials for construction. But the real question is why do they need more wood? And you say, more? What do you mean by more? Well, stop and think for a moment. We read last week in Ezra, as they were returning, 17 to 18 years earlier, they arrived in Jerusalem, and they used the letters of permission and the resources provided by Cyrus to barter and trade, and they used food, drink, and oil to get the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon in Ezra 3.7, specifically for the building of the temple. They had a massive stockpile of cedar wood, the best of the best in terms of wood. And now if Israel already had this stockpile of cedar wood from Lebanon, this command by Haggai to go up to the mountain must mean one of two things. Either one, they had miscalculated how much wood they needed, and the first thing God commanded was for them to make up that shortfall, or something had happened to the wood. And as we're about to see, it's clearly the latter. Now, I know it's been 16 or 17 years, so one of my first thoughts was, well, maybe all the wood had rotted away. It was no longer usable. It's become ruined. But the first time I studied this passage, I did some research and learned a few things. And the properties of cedar wood are unique from most other woods. Cedar, particularly the old cedars, those that would have been found in Lebanon, are inherently rot-resistant. They don't have to be treated with anything. They have a long life to them. They would have still been perfectly useful for building projects 15 to 20 years after being harvested. Unlike most wood, cedar, especially that that old cedar, 
does not have to be treated to ensure long life against elements and bugs. And also the climate of Israel. It's very good for preserving wood. And wood was a commodity in the ancient Near East, so it's not like it would have just been left out behind the woodshed to the elements. No, it would have been protected, carefully stored for use. So let me ask again, what happened to the wood? Why do they have to go to the mountains to get more wood when they should have had ample cedar from Lebanon, some of the choicest and best available? I think Haggai 1.4 gives us the answer. We discussed this last week. What word is used to describe the houses they're living in? It says paneled houses. Now there's a debate exactly what this paneling looked like. But there's very little debate about what makes up this paneling. So we looked at last time, every time this word is used in the Old Testament with regard to construction, which is every usage but one, it refers to cedar wood paneling. Paneling is used to describe the interior of Solomon's throne room, which contains cedar paneling. It was a description of the king's palaces in 1 Kings 7-7 and Jeremiah 22-14. And even more appropriate for our passage, it was used to panel Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 6-9 and 6-15. So now we understand what happened to the wood. Here it is in all of its unfiltered ugliness. In their fear, their disobedience, their presumption, eventually Israel had taken the cedar wood that was intended for God's temple and they had used it to panel their own houses and make their own homes comfortable. Their presumption had reached such a level that they took what was intended for the worship of God and had instead used it for their own comfort. Somehow believing that God wanted them to do that because now's not the time for rebuilding the temple. Now let that sink in for a minute. They have stolen from God. God killed Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire and worship. Uzzah was struck dead for simply touching the Ark of the Covenant to keep it from getting muddy. When the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and just held on to it, God sent tumors into the land to afflict them. He cares very much about his worship, his temple, it is a gracious God, a patient God, that has not wiped these people off of the face of the earth for what they have done. And so the first instruction God gives in correcting their disobedience, in assessing their situation, in considering their ways, likely made the boldest Israelite turn red with shame as they realized that their actions had not escaped the notice of the Lord of hosts. You know what it's like to feel that shame when it's uncovered, when your sin has been shown to you. Your stomach turns inside of you as the weight of that shame hits, as your sin's uncovered. In this case, it's uncovered before the God of heaven. But what makes us even worse, to add even further to their shame, is that for the past decade and a half, they have assumed that God would still bless them. You see that in verse 9. You look for much. They saw zero correlation between their obedience and God providing for them. Zero correlation between just even the basic provision of life and following and obeying God. In verse 9, Haggai points out how they looked for much. They expected much. They expect their hard work to be rewarded. 
with no regard for how their disobedience might affect them and impact them. God asked the rhetorical question in Haggai, through Haggai in verse 9, why? Why does this all happen? And it says it's because God's house lies desolate while each of you run to your own house. Despite disobedience, despite stealing God's resources for their own personal comfort, these Israelites were still looking for much and expecting much from God while completely ignoring him, completely abandoning their worship. They still expected blessing even in their sin. So God sets them straight and tells them that he is the one personally involved in preventing them from receiving much. And even what they do have, he blows away. They were stealing his resources to make themselves more comfortable. They were stealing not just resources, but worship from him. And God will not allow that to go unpunished. So what does God do? In verses 10 and 11, we see a further description of what we've already read, that he takes away all their resources. They had taken the best and choices of woods to make their homes comfortable while God's house lies desolate. So God took away their rain, their produce. It was just a couple months, again, after the grain harvest, right at the beginning of the harvest of the oil and wine. The problem is there was none to take and none to make. Having looked at this, having looked at the height of presumption and sin of these Israelites, it's easy to look down on them and condemn them. And they are wrong. That's a right assessment to make. But before we criticize them too harshly, think to yourself, Is there a time where you have done this? Not have you taken cedar wood that was supposed to be used for a temple and put it in your house. But have you ever misappropriated God's resources for your own well-being or comfort? Putting yourself before God. Have you gone about neglecting the work of God, obedience to God, all the while expecting God to bless you? In verse 9, God reiterates the purpose, the reason why Israel needed to stop presuming and stop stealing from him. And it was so that he would be pleased and be glorified. What do we say is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The question is, is are we living like it? What are we actively doing to achieve this? We must constantly fight the mentality that the chief end of man is to glorify self, right? That's why we struggle to rightly evaluate ourselves. That's why we struggle to consider our ways. God has given us gifts. He's given us abilities. He's given us resources, but they are not for our own benefit. Even in the New Testament. How do I know that? Well, what did Paul say to the Corinthians? He actually said it a couple times in his, the first epistle to them. In 1 Corinthians, I'm doing this in reverse order, in 6, 19 through 20, what does he say? He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, you may be thinking, okay, it's talking to me. Well, no, that's actually the second person plural there. Do you, do you all not know that your body, what body is he talking about? The body of Christ. The church is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you all are not your own, for you all have been brought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your collective body. It's reiterated here off of what had been said in 1 Corinthians 3.16. In fact, you can go ahead and just turn there. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3. There in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, we read, and this may be familiar to many of you, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And again, he's speaking in the collective plural. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you all are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you all think that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before, before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Each of us are part of the temple of God. Part of the temple that is being, according to Ephesians 2, fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord together. Each one of us are being fitted together into this body, into this temple. And so let me ask, if the church corporately is the temple of God today, are you giving adequate time, attention, and care to the temple? Are you using your gifts, abilities, and resources for the building up of this temple? And I'm not talking about a building. A building is nice to be able to meet in, but a building is not the church. It's the people. It's the people of God. And so are you working for the edification and the spiritual maturation of the church? Are you busy working to add to the church through evangelism and proclaiming the glorious grace and mercy of God outside the walls of any building? What about the time you've been given? What are you doing with it? Time is an extremely important resource and gift from God. What do you do with your time? Do you recognize that the time you have doesn't belong to you? It belongs to God? As such, you are accountable for every moment of your time and how you spend it in glorifying God. One of the most practical ways of doing that is in the building up of his body on this earth. Are you asking yourself regularly, daily, am I using the resources God has given to my care that he has entrusted to me? Am I using them to glorify him? And am I pleasuring him with it? Do I bring him happiness? Do others see God through what I do with my time, with my resources, with my abilities? I can't help but be reminded of the parable in Matthew 25, which we'll eventually get to, maybe a few years, where the man going on a journey entrusted talents to his slaves. And at the end of the story, two of the slaves are commended as good and faithful. They had pleased their master in how they had handled the resources that had been entrusted to their care. But do you remember what happened to the other slave? The one who did not rightly appropriate the resources entrusted to him? He was condemned and thrown into what is described as the outer darkness. Robert Mounts commented saying, in context, it means that faithfulness is rewarded by expanded opportunities, whereas the lack of fidelity or faithfulness leads to impoverishment. The law of spiritual atrophy is that when gifts are not extended, they are withdrawn. The good-for-nothing slave is flung out into the darkness, described as eternal fire, where he can weep and wail over his stupidity. The warning is appropriate for Christians who rest upon their religious profession. That is, just saying, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. 
without any apparent desire to live out its implications. We need fewer people saying they're Christian, more people acting like Christians today. And the point of the parable, going back to Matthew 25, is crystal clear. The servants of Christ, as they await his parousia, that is his return, have been entrusted with the responsibility of utilizing the gifts they have been given by the master. And to fail in this critical obligation is to be excluded from the kingdom when Christ returns. This is serious. You hear that? It is, if the pattern of your life is failure to obey the Lord and build up the body of Christ, you have good reason to question whether you are even part of the body of Christ. If church and the people that make up the church are not of primary importance to you, one of the most important things in your life, then you have good reason to doubt whether you are even a believer, whether you're even part of the body. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean we don't have struggles. It doesn't mean we don't have difficulties. Look, we are sinners. And the more we get to know one another, the more sin we're going to see. But you see, that's exactly what God intended because he intended for us to help one another because we are so bad at evaluating ourselves. And so he's given us one another for this very purpose. Our lives and the fruit of obedience are intended as comfort and assurance of the salvation we have received. But if you are not demonstrating fruit, then you shouldn't have comfort. And so the question is, is are you living your lives in such a way that you are pleasing and glorifying your Father so that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant? If not, then the consideration for you this morning is to repent and turn to the Lord. Confess your sin. Recognize that apart from Christ, you can do nothing yourself. All your efforts are futile. If you have never done this before, turn to Christ. Ask for his help. Ask for his salvation. And he will not despise you. He will not turn you away. A broken reed and a smothering wick he will not despise. Haggai's first message ends abruptly in verse 11 with no stated conclusion or direct call for action, but the implications are clear and obvious. There could be no return to prosperity, no comfort for the people, no normalization of their relationship with the Lord until first there was genuine repentance, a change of heart demonstrated by obedience. As one commentator notes, they must acknowledge their prior sinful choices. They must accept the notion that their difficulties were a due recompense from the Lord for their failure to keep the stipulations of the covenant with him. And then they need to determine to correct them, to correct their course of action immediately, not waiting for tomorrow. Do it today. Don't wait to stop sinning until tomorrow because tomorrow will never come. Specifically, they must give to the task of rebuilding the temple here in Jerusalem the priority that the Lord through prophet, prophet Haggai attached to it. It should be their primary importance right now. Nothing else should get in the way. And it's only in that way that God would again look with favor upon them and bless them with a renewed prosperity. And we get to look at that next week as we talked about last week. Haggai has a unique place among the prophets one of the few who gets to see people respond in obedience. So we'll look forward to that next week. But for those of us who profess to be disciples of Jesus Christ, this example and illustration from Haggai should help us to be diligent in examining ourselves and call to 
mind how important it is to do this. But be reminded and take heart. God has not left you alone in this task. We have the Holy Spirit. But we must not quench the Spirit through our disobedience. We must struggle. We struggle most with rightly evaluating ourselves when we are sinning. And so pray, ask the Lord to reveal sin in your life. And he's going to be faithful to do that. So don't be surprised when it happens. And then respond in repentance and a change in behavior. And as you do it, it will become easier to recognize and evaluate yourself rightly. Not fully, but easier. Still be wary of trusting yourself. Remind yourself not to measure yourself against the standard of others. Never compare yourself to others. Because even the best person you're comparing yourself to is a wretched sinner before God, in need of his mercy, hopefully covered by his grace. You don't even know the inward thoughts and motivations of the heart. So be very wary of comparing yourself to others. Take courage in examples set before you, but again, don't compare yourself to them as if you ever obtain anything just because you look somewhat like them. Instead, you continually measure yourself against God's holiness and his revealed will to us in Scripture. And then finally, make use of one of the greatest tools he has given for this evaluation, one another. The body of Christ is given that we might exhort, encourage, and rebuke one another as we fight against sin, as we do what John Owen said, which is to mortify the flesh, that is to kill sin each and every day. I need persons in my life who see when I sin, not just the good, but the good, the bad, and the ugly. You need the same. Creating a persona of perfection will only help to further deceive yourself and create a calloused conscience. So work to be transparent with others. Confess your sins to one another that we may pray for one another, encourage one another, come alongside one another. In all of this, we're to be busy in building up the temple of God, the church, until Jesus returns for his bride. Does this because there's a hurting world out there that is spiritually languishing, that so desperately needs the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. And unless we are busy being obedient and faithful, we will not reflect the glory of God to that world. This is why it is so critically important. In conclusion, I want to read a prayer that John Calvin prayed and was recorded when he preached this passage. He said, Grant, Almighty God, that we must carry on, that as we must carry on a warfare in this world, and as it is thy will to try us with many contests, O grant that we may never faint, however extreme may be the trials which we shall have to endure. And as thou hast favored us with so great an honor as to make us the framers and builders of thy spiritual temple, May every one of us present and consecrate himself wholly to thee. And inasmuch as each of us has received some peculiar gift, may we strive to employ it in building this temple, so that thou mayest be worshipped among us perpetually. And especially may each of us offer himself wholly as a spiritual sacrifice to thee, until we shall at length be renewed in thine image and be received into a full participation of that glory which has been attained for us by the blood of your only begotten Son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder 
from Haggai, what you have preserved for us. Father, may that example help stand as a guardrail in our lives, that we not, as we noted earlier, require experience to be the teachers of our foolishness, but instead let us take warning, let us take heed before we enter into that foolishness, that sin, and that disobedience. Help to strengthen our arm for the battle, to fight against sin, to rightly see sin where it lies, not in persons, not in others, but in the wickedness that so easily entangles us. Father, may we glorify you, may we honor you, may we be busy about building up your temple and not grow weary in doing good. Father, pray for those who are hurting this morning, who are struggling. May you strengthen their heart. May they be able to look at their life and see the fruit of their, their deeds, the fruit of their obedience as comfort and encouragement that you love them. And then take further delight that you do treasure them so much to have them enter into the trials as I've often been reminded, we're either in the middle of coming out of or going into trials in this life. Help it to be because of our faithfulness and our growth, not to punitively discipline us because of our foolishness and our sin. In your name, amen. If you'll take out your song sheet.